I'm Corey Lee Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shape both the past and present, and as actors, we will look at how his work was performed throughout various periods of time. All while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? All right, good morning, Elise. Good morning, Corey. With the episode on King James's demonology and the North Berwick witch trials and how it relates to Macbeth, unfortunately, there was not enough time to really get into the meat of the book demonology. So we thought it would be a great idea to dedicate this episode to filling our listeners in on what exactly James was talking about. To know what it says, but not spend an afternoon reading it. We're here for you. Yes. The book itself is called Demonology in Form of a Dialogue, divided into three books by the High and Mighty Prince James. It was written and published in 1599 by King James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England, and it is a philosophical dissertation on contemporary necromancy and the historical relationships between the various methods of divination used from ancient black magic. It also was a political and theological statement to educate a misinformed populace on the history, practices, and implications of sorcery and the reasons for persecuting a witch in a Christian society. It's broken up into a few books that then contain chapters with their own arguments. Mm -hmm. The first book, the entire argument is the description of magic. And in the first chapter, the argument is... The scripture proves that witchcraft can and might be practiced. We meet Philomathes and Epistemon, who are engaged in a conversation. Mm -hmm. Philomathes asks Epistemon to help him finalize whether or not there is witchcraft. Epistemon says it is going to be difficult because Philomathes already disbelieves and there is no disputing a negative premise. Philomathes says that he doesn't think the biblical story of Saul and the Witch of Endor will prove much. Epistemon says that the story does prove quite a lot. Note, demonology expects readers to understand the story already, so in case you aren't familiar with the Witch of Endor, according to Wikipedia, in the Hebrew Bible, the Witch of Endor is a woman Saul consulted to summon the spirit of the prophet Samuel in the 28th chapter of the first book of Samuel in order to receive advice against the Philistines in battle after his prior attempts to consult God through sacred lots and prophets had failed. Epistemon also says that there are more places where the word witch is used in the scriptures. Chapter 2. The argument laid out in chapter 2 is, what are the sins practiced by witches? and what allures witches to the craft. So Philomathes asks Epistemon how God could allow creatures made in his image to practice witchcraft. Epistemon replies that everyone is made in God's image, but some may fall out of his graces by working with the devil. The devil uncovers himself to the simplest of people because it's easier for him to, quote, entrap them so far into his snares, unquote. He also adds that there are two sorts of unhappy arts, magic or necromancy, and sorcery or magic. He also explains that the devil cannot read our minds 
So he observes us to see what it is that we most desire, and he then tempts us with that weakness. In chapter 3, the argument is the origins of the words witchcraft, the differences between necromancy and witchcraft, and how do people learn this craft. Epistemon tells Philomathes that magic comes from the Persian language. He says that the name was virtuous at first when these men didn't know any better. He also says that necromancy comes from the Greek as prophecy of the dead. According to Epistemon, the difference is that witches are servants slash slaves to the devil. Necromancers are his masters and commanders. The masters and commanders don't have any power over the devil because it's ex pacto, or from the pact. The devil gives necromancers a familiar demon. Philomathes asks how people learn this art. Epistemon says there are two groups, the learned and the unlearned. The only thing the miserable wretches gain from their bond with their mortal enemy is knowledge and damnation. Chapter 4's argument goes on to explain the principles and teachings of the art of magic and lays out the differences between astronomy and astrology. Philomathes asks, what are the devil's first principles? Epistemon replies that the devil's rudiments, which are first principles, are the vulgar virtue of word, herb, and stone used by unlawful charms without natural causes. Epistemon then elaborates on the charms used for either healing bewitched goats, keeping it from evil eyes, or keeping them from the evil eye. And the evil eye is a glance that a witch would make that could cause death. It was made stronger if it was a side eye, and even stronger if the eyes were bloodshot. Uh, by making a rune tree, by herbs, by hair or tail of goats, by curing the worm, by spells or incantations that block blood, also a bloodstone, by healing of horse crooks. I don't know what that was. Hmm. Couldn't find it. I guess let your imagination decide what that means. By turning of the riddle, kind of like a Ouija board, doing things like mediciners, by stopping married people from having sex, by knitting even knots on a thread. Philomathes then says these rudiments of the devil are lawful. For instance, astrology is a component of mathematics. So what's the problem? And Epistemon replies that there are two different schools in the science of astronomy, the law of the stars, and astrology, the word and preaching of the stars. Astrology is bad when people use these readings to tell the commonwealth if they'll succeed or if they'll fail or die. All of the practices of divination were seen as lawful in the pagan era, but are no longer lawful amongst Christians and are therefore called the devil school. Philomathes shoots back that many learned people think the opposite, and Epistemon says he won't budge from his opinion, citing for all the true Christians. Chapter 5, the argument is the lawfulness and unlawfulness of charms, the descriptions of circles and conjurations, what causes the magicians to get tired of the magic. Philomathes asks that if all of the unnatural practices Epistemon mentioned are unlawful, what do you think about the good people who openly practice some of these arts? Epistemon is offended that Philomathes isn't listening to what he said. He clarifies that the study and knowledge of magic is a minor offense, whereas the practice of magic is the great offense. Therefore, those who study or write about magic, such as John Dee or Agrippa, could publish as long as they couldn't be found to have actually practiced. He continues that if you study the art and know not to do it, you'll be fine. If you study it, but do not know it's the devil's rudiments, you will be more likely to be convinced to follow the devil. Epistemon also says that he can only speak for himself when he says that, aside from the grace of God, 
The people are weak and unprepared for the devil's entrapment because the devil is crafty. Philomathes asks Epistemon to describe the art of this magic. Epistemon continues that after witches, knowingly or unknowingly, learn about the black magic, they begin their contract with the devil. It includes the persons of the conjurers, the action of the conjuration, the words and rites used to that effect, the spirits that are conjured. He goes on to describe the circles and conjurations. There's no power in circles or other rituals inherently, but he will pass the bounds of the injunctions if the witch trusts him. He tricks them with the everlasting ownership of the soul and body. Then the conjurers gather and present an animal sacrifice. Then you summon the spirit to speak to you. And if you mess up any aspect of the ritual, you will suffer death at the hands of the spirit you summoned. Chapter six is the argument of the devil's contract with magicians who were strictly males. He also talks about God's miracles versus the devil's miracles. Philomathes suggests that there are reasons to stay with the devil rather than running away from him if you're smart about it. Epistemic counters that the devil's contract has two aspects, form and effect. Form is what shape the devil comes to the magician in. Effects is the service he offers and gives them, which is kind of unclear in the book itself. To some, the most curious spirit will enter a dead body to give predictions to the magician. Others will take the form of a familiar. The devil will teach the magicians the arts and sciences and secrets from other parts of the world. He will foretell many great things, part true, part false. For if it were all false, he would lose credit at all hands, but always doubts them as his oracles were. God is a creator, and what he makes appears in miracle. The devil's is a trick that deludes our senses. A magician makes a pact with the devil using his own blood. But while magicians make a pact with the devil, their mark is invisible, unlike the witch's mark. On to chapter 7. The argument in chapter 7 is the reason why the art of magic is unlawful. What is a just punishment and who may be deemed guilty? Philomathes asks what is said to make this art unlawful. Epistemon replies that people who call it lawful must wish for the art of magic themselves. Philomathes brings up two points. Upon custom, Christian princes and magistrates will sometimes overlook witchcraft and, quote, sometimes delight to see them prove their practice. Moses was learned in the sciences of the Egyptians, and this was one of their principles. The things that Moses did pleased God, and if this art was done by Moses, a godly man, it could not be unlawful. Epistemon argues that, no matter the tradition, an evil custom cannot be accepted for a good law. God understands that science is lawful, but it's ignorance to call something unlawful a science. There is a difference between knowledge and practicing a thing. Moses was a changed man. He, like others in the Bible, had changed before they were called. When asked about punishments, Epistemon reminds us that there is a difference between sorcerers and witches versus magicians and necromancers. Remember, magicians and necromancers know they're sinning against God as they've explained back in chapter 2. Epistemon says that generally he likes the punishments of consulting, inquiring, entertaining, and overseeing them, seen by a miserable end. He never actually lays out actual punishments, though. So that's book one. Uh, basically, witchcraft exists, and any magic or witchcraft is the work of the devil, and you can learn all about it if you want to, but don't you dare go practicing it. Now we're on to the second book. 
The big argument in the second book is the description of sorcery and witchcraft. So in chapter one, he argues the scriptures prove that sorcery and witchcraft exists. And he also explains the reasons it is rejected as an imagination and melancholy humor. So Philomathes tells Epistemon that since he has convinced him of the existence of magic and necromancy, please do the same for sorcery and witchcraft. Epistemon says that the field is very large, yet not many believe it. Philomathes stops Epistemon to say, before you go on, the Bible only mentions magicians, not witches. Philomathes says that those who say that they are witches and perform daily practices are simple and actually using their imagination. If these witches exist, no one can exist long enough to escape their devilry and tell anyone about it. Epistemon reminds Philomathes that he actually admitted the part of the scriptures that condemn magical arts of anyone who works with the devil. And then he gives a convoluted explanation as to how early biblical witches may have been more possessed than conspiring with the devil through a spirit or a familiar. That seems like a really good cop-out. Mm-hmm. Epistemon reminds Philomathes of the scriptures that condemn arts of anyone who works with the devil. He argues that Philomathes' second argument neglects to acknowledge that while there are melancholy witches, either pale, lean, etc., there are witches and sorcerers who are not melancholy. They're fat, rich, wealthy. To attribute witchcraft as part of the imagination of a melancholy humor is not sufficient. A humor refers to the four humors that balance a person's health and wellness. This was a common belief during Shakespeare's time. Also, Shakespeare references these humors very often, as did his contemporaries. James was right that those accused of witchcraft were not melancholy. Witches testified that they gathered, sang, danced, drank, made love, and enjoyed themselves. The opposite of the secluded melancholy that Philomathy argues. Epistemon also argues that witches tend to confess to their guilt after torture, which counters the disposition of a melancholic humor. So he then argues that Philomathy's third argument is incorrect because there's evidence of the harm witches can do to man, although he never specifies what that evidence actually is. Chapter 2 has the argument, the etymology of the word sorcery, and what gets sorcerers to practice the craft. Epistemon jumps right in and answers that the word sorcerer derives from the Latin sorcierius, a sorte, meaning one who casts a lot. He says that the word for witchcraft derives from our own language. Actually, the origin of the word witch is not concretely known, There are many possible origins of the word, but witches and sorcerers practice under the same master. Epistemon goes on to say that, like he divided up the witches by learned and unlearned, now he must divide them up by rich and poor. Unlike the poor and miserable who are lured by promises of wealth, the devil allures the wealthy by promises of revenge. After the devil prepares their mind, he reveals himself to the sorcerer or witch, makes them renounce God, gives them a mark, sore and unhealed until his next visit. On the second visit, he heals the mark. At the third meeting, he delivers his promises and shows them how they may get revenge or obtain gain and worldly commodity. Chapter 3, and this argument is about the witch's actions in two parts. One, actions to themselves, and two, actions to others. He also goes on to explain the form of their conventions and their adoration of their master. Epistemon begins by telling Philomathes that though there are different ways of working for their master, all have the same goal to serve and increase Satan's tyranny, and they will either cross into the kingdom of Christ or leave it for the devil. He differentiates that magicians work for the devil out of their own curiosity and their need for popularity and fame, 
while witches work for the devil for worldly goods or revenge against mankind. The devil also has the power to delude the senses of the magicians and the witches. The devil counterfeits in his servants the same sort of adoration that God prescribed and made his servants practice. While God's ministers and servants serve in their public conventions, the church, the unclean spirit of Satan convenes to teach all kinds of mischiefs, often at the same places that servants of God convene. The witches who adore the devil will kiss his buttocks in the pulpit. And note, this is something that he heard as testimony at the North Berwick trials. I don't know if anyone else had mentioned it. All right. And on that note, moving on to chapter four, the argument for chapter four is what ways can witches transport themselves to other places? What are illusions of Satan? What are the reasons for these? Philomathes asks, how is it possible that witches can go to these unlawful gatherings? Epistemon responds that witches can travel in two ways, the natural way of riding, going, or sailing at the hour their master advises them, or being carried by the force of the spirit, either above the earth or above the seat to the place where they're supposed to meet. He also notes that witches can only be carried so long as they can hold their breath. If they travel too long, they won't be able to catch their breath and they'll suffocate. This fable was believed up into recent times of train travel. A third way that they travel is either by turning into a little animal or through astral projection. It is the devil's workmanship to do something so unnatural as to make someone so little and yet not be diminished or in pain. And in the case of spiritual transport, God has it so that if your spirit leaves your body, it does not wander. You are going to your resting place. The devil appears to the body lying as dead in the form of dreams and represents such forms of persons, of places, and other circumstances to delude the witch with. The devil deludes the witch into believing the dreams that were inserted into their mind by him, and those reports and tokens end up hurting others. Chapter 5. The argument in this chapter is the witch's actions towards others. Why there are more women of the craft than men. What is possible by the power of their master and why? What is the remedy of harm done by them? Philomathes compliments Epistemon. So basically James is complimenting himself uh, by saying that there is a lot of reason to accompany his opinion. Epistemon continues by explaining the harm done to others by witches, the manner of their consulting, their part as instruments, and their master's part. When the witches convene with the devil, they ask him what they could do to gain riches or get revenge. The devil then teaches them how to do evil, just like him. He teaches them to take apart dead bodies and make powders with their occult ingredients. This was taken from the charge of the North Berwick witch trials. Philomathes then interrupts to ask why the ratio of women in the craft to men is 20 to 1. Epistemon answers that the reason is easy. Women are frailer than men. Epistemon then continues the actions towards others, including puppets for manipulating the person the clay figure represents. They can also make men and women love or hate each other. They can lay sickness upon others. They can bewitch and take the life of another, especially by manipulating those humors we talked about. They can raise storms and tempests. They can make people frantic or manic by sending spirits to follow troubled persons, haunt houses, and affright the inhabitants, and can make some possessed with spirits. Epistemon says there are three types of people God will permit to be tempted or troubled. The wicked for their horrible sins, the godly who are sleeping in any great sins, and even some of the best that may be tried before the world. Philomathes then asks who may be free of the devilish practices. Epistemon responds, nobody, we are always in a fight against the devil. Philomathes asks if a witch can help get rid of a disease, 
and Epistemon reminds him that no magic is done for good. Philomathes then asks how a disease can be gotten rid of, to which Epistemon replies, with a prayer, amendments of their lives, and by sharply pursuing every one of the instruments of Satan. He states that in order to get rid of a disease, you must track down and get rid, or sacrifice, the witch who implemented the harm. Partially why witchcraft hunts became so popular. Well, yeah, it's a nice cure-all. Mm-hmm. Now, on to chapter six. The argument here is, who is more or least likely to be harmed by witchcraft? What powers do witches have to harm the magistrate, meaning a civil officer or a judge? And what power do they have in prison? What end will the devil appear to them in prison? And upon what respects the devil appears in different shapes to various of them at any time? Philomathes asks who punishes witches, if no one can be sure to be free from their powers. Epistemon responds that he who is the most vocal and vigilant about tracking down witches is going to have greater protection from God. Philomathes asks what power they have over the magistrate. Epistemon replies that if a magistrate is slothful, God will protect him less. But if he is faithful to God by examining and punishing witches, God will protect them from the devil. Philomathes asks what power witches have when they are arrested. Epistemon replies that if a witch is detained in a private residence, their power is as powerful as normal. But if they are detained in a lawful magistrate's, the devil has no power. Philomathes asks if the devil ever visits the witches in detention. Epistemon responds that it depends on the state the witches are in. If they still deny their witchcraft, he will find the right time to visit them again and fill them with the vain hope of relief. Or if they are in a deep despair, he will persuade them to kill themselves. Actually, many people imprisoned for witchcraft did kill themselves. The devil will not visit them if they confess, because God will not allow it. Philomathes asks if anyone else in prison can see the devil, to which Epistemon responds, it depends on whether or not God wants them to see him. Chapter 7. The argument in this chapter is the two forms of the devil with explanation for why one form was common in the papistry and the other is common today. And he also talks about those that deny the power of the devil, God, and are guilty of the error of the Sadducees. Philomathes asks if there are other ways that the devil can show himself, because oracles and illusions have been abolished since Christ. Epistemon responds that the gospel shows the gross errors of paganism, but these ghosts and spirits were heard of, mostly, during the blind papistry, not seen. Now they are commonly seen. Philomathes asks why. Epistemon responds that during the papistry, sins were widely accepted. Now that England is, quote, sound of religion, unquote, God punishes us for the sins we practiced. Epistemon says that if you deny the power of the devil, you also deny the power of the God. So that's a nice, like, argument against Catholicism and, like, building up Protestantism is what I got from that book. Nice, mm -hmm. James. Now on to the third book. The third book's entire argument is the description of all these kinds of spirits that trouble men and women, and then we'll get to the end of this dialogue, finally. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Chapter one. Chapter one's argument is the division of spirits into four kinds, the best way to be free of their trouble. The four divisions of trouble include where spirits trouble some houses or solitary places, where spirits follow certain persons and trouble them at diverse hours, when they enter and possess them, and the fairies. The first three are artificially made by witchcraft. Epistemon goes on to say that, as to the first kind of spirits, they were called by the ancients according to their actions. They were called lemures, 
ghosts of the dead, spectra, apparition, or umbre mortuorum, shade of the dead. Epistemon also explains that ghosts visit solitary places because people are more vulnerable to be afraid when we are alone. Philomathes asks if God will permit the devil to use the bodies of good people. Epistemon replies that the corpse of a faithless and a faithful person may be used by the devil, but when a person is dead, their soul cannot be corrupted. Philomathes argues that some people have lived in haunted places and seen or heard nothing. Epistemon says that's because God has not permitted them to see it. Philomathes asks what it means when a dead person appears to his friends. Epistemon explains that those spirits are called wraiths. This is not a spirit sent from God. It's a spirit sent from the devil. The devil is used to trick pagans because they knew no God. And some ignorant Christians are also fooled. Philomathes asks if werewolves are also these kind of spirits. By the way, people very much believed in werewolves at this time. Peter Strump was executed in Germany in 1589 for being a werewolf. Epistemon replies that werewolves don't exist. <laughs> Epistemon's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're talking about witches. Cross the line with werewolves. Not factual. There's, there are just brief moments of comedy in this. I do want to acknowledge that. Werewolves don't exist. They are a response to a person's melancholy in which they believe themselves to be werewolves, but they're but not. But witches do exist. They are but not a melancholy. They're not a melancholy. They, cool. they, they can't be explained uh, some other way. Not the patriarchy. No. Moving right along to chapter two. In this chapter, the argument is the description of the next two types of spirits. One haunts outwardly and one inwardly. Because all of the prophecies of the Bible have ended, all spirits are now evil. Epistemon explains that there are two types of people who get haunted either outwardly or inwardly. The sinner guilty of grievance offenses or the persons of the best peradventure being tested for the trial of their patience. Philomathes agrees that sometimes it's good for God to use the devil for some people, but he asks, what's the goal of the devil? Epistemon responds that the devil's goal is to get the tinsel of a person's life by following or possessing them and to obtain the tinsel of their soul by enticing them to mistrust and blaspheme God. Supernatural events only served the founding of faith. In chapter 3, we're going to get the description of incubi and succubi, the reason these spirits haunt the northern and most barbaric parts of the world. Philomathes asks for Epistemon to talk about the most monstrous spirits, the ones who have sex with the people they haunt. Epistemon responds that the most abominable spirit is the incubi and succubi. Women of the past would unwillingly have sex with a spirit, and women now willingly have sex with spirits. One way this happens is that the devil steals sperm from a dead body, and the victim feels nothing. The other is that he steals a dead body, and the person has sex with it. He also notes that no one gets pregnant by this because by the time the sperm is stolen or copulation is done, the sperm is too cold. It is possible for the devil to get a woman pregnant if he stirs up her own humor, uses herbs like beggars, which is James saying that beggars will take herbs to appear pregnant for more alms, but they might have eaten herbs whose properties expanded their bellies simply to curb their hunger. Super classist yeah. there, James. And then the pregnant woman births a monstrous child. Philomathes asks why this kind of abuse, sex with spirits, is more common with the wild parts, like Lapland and Finland, or the North Isles of Orkney and Shetland. 
Epistemon responds that it's because that region of the world is where the devil finds the greatest ignorance and barbarity. Philomathes asks if this is the same as a quote-unquote mare, to which Epistemon corrects him that no, the mare, which is sleep paralysis, is a natural sickness. So just because you wake up in sleep paralysis doesn't mean a spirit is having sex with you. Phew. I'd be like, mm, how many times has that happened to me unknowingly? Chapter 4. The argument in this chapter is the description of demonics and the possessed, and why the papists may have power to cure them. Philomathes asks, why are people possessed and why do papists have the power to cure them? He describes it as one devil casting out another. Epistemon responds that there are a diverse amount of symptoms, raging at holy water, fleeing aback from the cross, and not abiding the hearing of God named. Epistemon claims many of the papists are counterfeit, which is how the clergy, quote, confirmed their rotten religion, unquote. He also notes the experience is that few who are possessed are fully cured by papists. The devil will temporarily leave a body to give the false sense of a cure. They follow the same actions that Christ gave for casting out demons, which is why they can be successful. Now on to chapter five, the description of the fourth type of spirits called fairies and what is possible and what is an illusion, how much this conversation has an effect on these things and to what end. Epistemon explains that fairies were viewed under the illusion of jolliness. To him, it seems more like a Greek myth than anything Christian should believe. And he reminds us that the devil can make simple people believe they saw and heard things that do not exist. Philomathes asks why it is that many witches have, quote, gone to death and confessed that they, quote, have been transported with the fairies to such a hill and saw a fairy queen who gave them a stone. At this time, highlands were where fairies were said to live underground in hidden passageways and caves. Epistemon responds that, as he said before, the devil can delude a person's senses to see what is an illusion. Philomathes asks Epistemon to explain the prophecies witches can make, to which Epistemon responds that they have not been thoroughly examined, or the devil prophecies into their imagination as he can counterfeit God amongst the pagans. And he reminds Philomathes that he has mentioned this before. Philomathes asks if these fairy spirits can be seen by both witches and non-witches. Epistemon says yes. They can be seen by non-witches either to frighten innocent people or to seem to the innocents as a better kind of spirit, not an unclean spirit. They appear to witches as a technicality in a court of law, so that magistrates may not punish the witches. He doesn't want to be too technical, quote, dipping any further in playing the part of a dictionary, because he doesn't want to teach such unlawful arts. He concludes that it is the duty of all Christians to disallow and condemn the unlawful arts. And now we are finally here. The final chapter. Chapter 6 of this chaotic and confusing piece of text. In chapter 6, the argument is the trial and punishment of witches. This sort of accusation that should be made against them and the reason the amount of witches is increasing so much in this age. Philomathes wants to wrap up the conversation. He says, quote, I see it draws late, unquote, and asks what type of punishment should be placed upon magicians and witches. So Epistemon responds that they should be put to death according to the law of God, the civil and imperial law, and municipal law of all Christian nations. Philomathes asks what kind of death, to which Epistemon responds, it is common to be put to death by fire, but that varies by country according to their custom. Philomathes asks if any prince or magistrate may overlook those guilty of witchcraft if there is some reason known to him. 
but Epstemon responds that a prince or magistrate may delay the trial, but the witch ultimately must die. Philomathes counters that if this is the case, a magistrate must be sure to not accuse an innocent person, to which Epistemon responds that judges must beware to make sure they don't condemn the innocent just as much as let the guilty go free. There must be sufficient proof. Philomathes asks then how many guilty persons' confessions work against one that is accused. Epistemon responds that children, wives, or defamed persons may not be witnesses or proof, but a witch can be proof and witness against another witch's doings. Philomathes asks, what if a witch accuses an innocent person, to which Epistemon says that it's not possible because the devil won't be able to use someone without their consent. James is saying anyone accused of witchcraft is automatically guilty because God wouldn't let an innocent person's name be brought up at one of the imaginary conventions. Epistemon also goes on to say that you should threaten and torture the accused, quote, as you please, unquote, before they repent. Philomathes then agrees with everything Epistemon says and expresses his enthusiasm to purge the country of the devilish practices. Epistemon prays to God that it be so, and he concludes that the great wickedness of the people causes this horrible defection so God justly punishes sin. Satan is raging more because he knows his kingdom is coming to an end. That is leaving us, the readers, to become warriors of God. And that's the end. (gasps) Thank you for listening so for staying yes. with us through this mind-boggling argument. Yes, you can see why we do not recommend reading it. If this episode has inspired you to read the book of demonology front to back, I recommend getting The Demonology of King James I by Donald Tyson. It includes the original text of demonology and the news from Scotland and the foreword The introduction and the footnotes are incredibly well-researched, and it really helps to contextualize what the Book of Demonology was really talking about. So if you do want to dive deeper into this, that's the source that I highly recommend. Any final thoughts? Oh, man. Did James want to justify murdering people? Yeah, it's a lot to unpack. a lot to unpack, and it's... Yeah. Basically, uh, like the the thing that like just sums it all up for me is the only way we know you're virtuous is if you're accusing people. You can't be a witch and also accuse people. But if you're accused of witchcraft, you can name others, mm-hmm. and those are also witches, and those are not innocent people. Yep, because God wouldn't allow it. And there are so many loopholes where it's like, oh well, it depends on if God wants you to see it or not. It depends on if God wants you to know it or not. Ah, mm-hmm. James. What were you doing, my dude? It's a lot. And again, a bajillion thank yous for staying with us. And we hope you will join us next time. I'm Corey Lee Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened 
all the way to the end of the credits, here is a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Pericles, scene 16, said by Bolt. She has a good face, speaks well, and has excellent good clothes. There's no farther necessity of qualities can make her be refused.